0: My name is Kent and I'm one of the pastors here and I'm excited to be able to open up the book of Acts again with you this morning. We're looking at this kind of like a learning lab. It's teaching us some specific things about how we should love our neighbors or how we might be able to engage our neighborhood. So we're in Acts chapter 2 again. We're going to actually look at the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. So if you've got your Bible, I'd really like to encourage you to open that up and follow along or grab a Bible out of a chair or open it up on your phone and read along. Acts is right after the gospel, so we're about the last quarter of your Bible. If you open it up in the last third, you'll probably get Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Then keep going, you'll get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at Acts 2, starting with verse 14. Um, The sermon that we have here, if you uh, preach this sermon, would take about three minutes. Um, It's pretty clear that it's not the whole sermon, because at the end it says, well, with many other words he talked to them, but... um, We're going to read the whole sermon here this morning from Acts 2, starting with verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of our Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and is in his tomb here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. A couple months ago, my wife Mary and I went to uh, Minneapolis and so we always have to stop at Ikea when we go there. And as I was, uh, I knew that our series was going to be I Love Cedar Rapids and I was always, always go to Ikea thinking about props. So when we got to the little kids department, they had Uh, sign that really gets my attention it's the sign that says clearance (laughs) and I go over there and they got these little heart-shaped night lights for kids and they're like three bucks and I'm like thinking I should buy like 50 of these is what I'm thinking and we could have little hearts all over but I pulled back and I bought one and um, I installed it here not knowing that it pulsated and I wonder if that's maybe part of the reason why they were on clearance, because I can't imagine that this is comforting to a kid at night, having a, a heart pulsating. And, or else, I, when I mounted it, I put a staple through the cord. That might be the reason it's pulsating. So if smoke <laughs> starts to come from the pulpit this morning, you all give me warning. Would that get your attention? If smoke came pouring out of the pulpit today? I talk to people all the time, and they tell me that it's getting harder and harder to get people's attention, that we are flooded with constant input, constant messages, bombarded 24-7 with stuff, and that it's harder and harder to break through that in order to get people's message, to get even important messages out. So what is it that would get your attention this morning? The one group of people that seems to still have a knack of doing this is those people who make commercials. At least a lot of them work for me, and uh, one of the commercials, one of the companies that routinely has the best commercials, rated as the best commercials, is Doritos. They have really interesting commercials, and I got for you a little uh, attention grabber of the best Dorito commercial from 2016, so watch this commercial. Tell me if it gets your attention.
1: Get, get, shoot. Hey out, out. get, get, get <laughs> Did you find everything okay, sir? <laughs>
0: what? Have a good day, sir So they know how to get your attention. I guess you've got to use dogs or cute kids or maybe a little bit of humor. The guy that actually created this was a student who was in a contest. And this was shown on Super Bowl, and he won, I think, a million dollars for creating this little attention-grabbing commercial. There's actually a little strategy behind these commercials, and the strategy has three pieces. Hook, look, and took. They want to hook your attention... And then they hope by doing that you'll continue to watch and you'll look at the product that they're trying to sell and then in the end you'll, it'll end result in a took. You'll take their product home and you'll go get So uh, we'll see if there's a rush on Doritos after the service this morning. I don't know. When I started teaching about 30 years ago I taught my first Sunday school class. The methodology that I was um, coached on to teach was hook, look, and took. Start your class with something to grab their attention and then get them to look carefully at the lesson, whatever material you got for the day, and make sure you give them something to take home, that there's a took. Would you believe that this is the same strategy that Peter uses in this sermon over 2,000 years ago on Pentecost? Hook, look, and took. Of course, he didn't use cute dogs as a hook. He used drunkenness. Because those of you who were here last week remember that these signs came with the appearing of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of flame, and then everybody started speaking in their own, uh, in the various languages. And there was a number of people in the crowd who said, Hey, I think they're drunk. Listen to them. It's just gibberish. It sounds crazy. And Peter uses this idea of drunkenness as a hook to get their attention. Now, Drunkenness induced by pouring out too much wine creates a spectacle. Maybe some of you have seen that sometime in your life. The spectacle created by God when he pours out his Holy Spirit seems like it would be a completely different thing, doesn't it? We might think these two things don't go together, drunkenness and the Holy Spirit, but Peter puts them together. And which, by the way, is an excellent way to have a hook. If you put two things together that are unexpected, that will get your attention. Alcohol, I understand, is a mood-altering substance. Some of you maybe have first-hand experience with this. It affects the nerve messages as they pass through your system. It slows them down. And the more alcohol you drink, the greater effect that has on your your system. This is why people often get livelier and more energetic when they've had a lot to drink. A part of your body that's affected is the part that affects self-control. So essentially what happens when you have too much alcohol is you are, in essence, surrendering to the alcohol. The alcohol is taking over, and you lose control. God gives this gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and it takes control of their lives. In essence, they surrender as the Spirit takes over. They begin to do whatever the Spirit wants them to do. That's what the disciples do. They don't have necessarily control over what's going on. The Holy Spirit is guiding them and directing them. And Peter uses this to get their attention. Hey, they're not drunk as you think they are. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, by the way. Who's drunk that early? They are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening. And then this audience, which was particularly a Jewish audience that he was talking to, his fellow Israelites, he, he adds a second punch to that hook. He says this pouring out of the spirit is actually not some random thing. This is actually fulfilling the promises that God has made to his people, that God one day will pour out his goodness. This is what Joel talked about. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will begin to prophesy. And this is what they're watching, Peter says. You're watching God's promise fulfilled before your very eyes. And the fruit of this, he says, is that on that day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter has hooked their attention. He says this is, Spectacle that you're seeing right now is God doing God's work just as God promised that he was going to do. And then once he's hooked their attention, he immediately goes into this great revelation of this plan of salvation. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and then he tells you exactly how that's going to happen. Once Peter gets their attention, he invites them to look and they for the rest of this, they're looking at one thing. You know what they're looking at? They're looking at Jesus. He says, for the rest of the time, I want you to look at Jesus. Listen to this, he says, back in the Acts 2. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you, and you yourselves know this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. So be assured of this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. The focus of Peter's message from start to finish Is Jesus? He wants you to know about the life and ministry of Jesus. He wants you to know about the death of Jesus. He wants you to know about the resurrection of Jesus, and then the last part of it. He wants you to know that because of all of this, Jesus is going to be the one who's exalted above all, and the one who brings salvation. And this is actually a pattern that continues throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And if you start to read some of the early sermons of the church, if you're interested in doing that, you can go review this. They. All follow the same pattern. They say, Look at Jesus. We want you to see that God's plan was fulfilled, His promises were fulfilled through the life and death and ministry and resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus Christ. These are the themes that come out of every one of these sermons. That God was planning to bring this in, this salvation about before the beginning of time, that this is all unfolding just exactly as God had planned it to unfold. This is exactly what God wants, and the result of this is that Jesus will be exalted, and the Holy Spirit will be unleashed, and God's people will be transformed, and this is the gospel. It's interesting to me when I read through these sermons, I'm missing something. You know, we try around here to relate to you, and so we use personal stories and what we might call personal testimony sometimes we say hey listen i want to tell you about how this is unfolding in my life but i find one thing surprisingly missing from all of these early sermons there's no personal testimony in these sermons you know and the disciples who actually had very interesting lives they had some very dramatic experiences i mean you know getting out of the boat walking on water that's dramatic uh watching 5,000 fed, and then you being used to feed 5,000. This is dramatic. They don't talk about that when they preach these sermons throughout the book of Acts. What they talk about is that God sent his son, Jesus, to come, to live, to die, to rise again, and this is good news. This is, this. This is the... They, they don't say, look at my story. They say, look at Jesus, because that story is far more compelling. So I was trying to think about why would, why would that be the case? Why aren't they telling us a little more of their story maybe to pull us into that and I wonder if it's because they recognize that the story of Jesus is far more compelling isn't it the God who created the universe the God who reigns and rules over all things the God who sits on the throne in heaven becomes a baby and walks the dusty roads of Galilee And tells people about the coming of God's kingdom and heals the sick and feeds the hungry and raises the dead. This man is arrested and falsely condemned to die. And he's nailed to a cross and he dies and he's buried. And three days later, he's alive again. This is a compelling story. This is what the apostles preach. They preach, look at Jesus. I wonder if they realize that, you know, their is pale in comparison to this great story. Or I wonder if they realize, you know, everybody's got a story, right? Everybody's got a personal testimony. They can tell me about what changed their life or what matters to them or what's important. I can tell you about how my faith matters to me and how that changes my story. But everybody has a story. The Jews have a story and the Muslims have a story and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the I'm learning about a primal diet, and I, I can't yet tell you that this diet has changed my life, but apparently it's changed somebody's life. He's got a personal testimony. The primal diet changed my life. You know, everyone's got their story. And I wonder if the disciples realize that some of that is actually true in all times, in all places. We all have got our story, but here's a story nobody else has. God come to earth, died for our sins, raised from the dead. For whatever reason, the content of their preaching. What they say they want you to look at. They want you to look at Jesus, and they're very consistent about that. God intervenes in this broken world to bring salvation through Jesus, and that is the focus of all of these early sermons. Now, marketing experts I looked at this week told me that there are some things that get our attention that they use. Do something unexpected, go against the grain, solve a problem, make a promise, bring joy, make the world a better place, or appeal to emotion, touch your emotional core. These are things that marketers use to try to get attention. The gospel does all these things, doesn't it? I want you to think about that while you watch this little clip. This is a little clip that's entitled, This is the gospel.
2: The Gospel is that there is this infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful Creator God that created all things for His glory, and you and I have belittled that, belittled His name, belittled His glory. Every one of us have at one time or another, actually currently, believe that our way is better than God's. We fail to acknowledge, give him glory for the gifts he's given us. We question his rule and his authority while at the same time doing that with the brain he gave us and holds together and the lungs and the air that he gave us to breathe with. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. So we've all belittled God, and God being just right and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. God then, not being able to spare wrath, sends Christ in the flesh and crushes him. And in so doing, pours out his wrath against the children of God onto the Son, killing him. Then God raises him from the dead and that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who would believe. This is the gospel. That you and I have right standing before God not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether or not we cuss or don't cuss, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch this, do this, don't do that. Justified before God by the cross of Christ alone. Your lust... You're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your rage, anger, those deviances that have been following you around, you don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Christ can. That's the good news. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we continually celebrate Him. We boast in the cross and the cross alone. The same power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead, is at work in me and work in all who believe. This is the gospel.
0: We do something to hook your attention, and then we say, look at this truth, and then we want to give you something to take away. What's the took? For this And I grew up with a really big emphasis on the kind of so what question, which is the took question. So what from all of this you've heard? What difference does it make? And I was coached that um, when I preach, I should spend a lot of time on application. People need help in trying to figure this stuff out and how to live it out. The took part. I'm fascinated when I read the sermon in Acts 2 that there's virtually no took He never really gets to it, except that the people bring it up themselves. After he has presented the gospel truth, the people, it says, were cut to the heart. The gospel message invited response. And so they asked the apostles, what should we do? Then Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And those who accepted this message that day were about 3,000 people. Looking at the story of Jesus cuts people to the heart. You can't hear this story and not respond. Some people hear it and they respond, ah, it can't be. I don't believe it. That's one response to the gospel story. People, no, I just don't believe some part of it. There's too many parts that are too hard to believe. I'm not going to believe it. That's a response. Some people respond, whoa, this is too good not to believe. This is amazing they're cut to the heart and they accept the message that has been offered to them. People who hear the story of Jesus don't sit on the fence. They go, bah, or they go, wow. When we love Cedar Rapids, we tell people about Jesus. This is one of the things we do. We tell them about the things that Jesus did, that in Jesus our sins are forgiven, that in Jesus God wipes out sins, past, present, and future. In Jesus, God makes us new people. In Jesus, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, this comes to you as a gift by grace, through faith. This can come to you. This is part of the story. The gospel announces that the kingdom of God has been established through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And through that message, we come to faith, which is saturated with love and, and led by the Spirit and, and driven by the gospel. This is the message that we bring. I think it can be really hard to get the attention of people nowadays. People are caught up in lots of things, and we tend to fall into patterns. We have routines that we get into, and even if the pattern isn't good for us, we usually keep perpetuating that. We just keep, keep on going, and, um, even if it's not working for us. So what would get somebody's attention? I don't know about everybody, but I know what gets my attention. Here's the kind of things that get my attention. Tragedies get my attention. When there's some big disaster, some natural disaster or some terrorist attack or some big upheaval in the world, that, that gets my attention. I start to pay attention. Pain, gets, uh, when I'm in pain physically or emotionally, that gets my attention. When I'm sick, that usually gets my attention. Funerals get my attention. I had a funeral on Monday, and I, know, I paid attention all week. And this is what I noticed, that on weeks when I have a funeral, I pay more attention to the things that God might want to say to me. It just gets me to tune in. I'm I'm hooked to try to listen. Those are some of the things that get my attention. Beauty also gets my attention. Things of stunning beauty, when I see a magnificent sunset... Um, whenever I've traveled to beautiful places like the mountains or the beach or something, I go, wow, this is inspiring. It gets my attention. Thunderstorms get my attention. Tulips. I got tulip time in my backyard this week, and man, they are, I was out there early one morning with my cell phone snapping pictures. If anybody wants one, I can send you some tulip pictures. <laughs> Band concerts get my attention. Beautiful music these things hook me. One of the most powerful hooks for me in the beauty area is when I see someone succeed, especially when I see kids realizing their potential or discovering some new thing or being shaped and molded to be future um, adults, I guess, when they realize their potential, that gets my attention. I wonder if these same things get the attention of my neighbors And I suspect that I'm really not that different from my neighbors, and so I guess that they maybe get their attention drawn by the same things that I do. And so I wonder if I just paid attention to the things that hook my neighbor's attention, and then if I'm in relationship with them and begin to chat with them about it, and then at some point it might feel like the right time for me to say something about, hey, how about if you look at Jesus? That's something that really gets my attention. I wonder if that would make a difference. Anyway, there's some thoughts about some open doors of things that might help you take this away. I also do wonder many times if our getting other people to look at Jesus actually starts with our looking at him more carefully so that we actually uh, see him clearly. Pastor Allen's a huge encouragement to me in this area because he's talking to me on different occasions about falling in love with Jesus all over again, seeing some new thing about Jesus and what he has accomplished and who he is, and what he does, and if that just doesn't get my attention, um, maybe that's where it all starts. So I want to end with a few moments for you to do a little contemplation about Jesus, and maybe what Jesus means to you, and how you look at Jesus. And to help you with that, we got one last little song we want you to listen to, and go ahead and play that now.